Well, good afternoon again. It's great to be here with you. Thanks for the welcome. Uh, the question I've been asked to speak about, the topic I've been asked to speak about is there on the screen, I think. Now we need to swap it over. How's this? Beyond fiction, the historical grounding for the founding events of Christianity. Mark Twain famously said, truth is stranger than fiction. But it is because fiction is obliged to stick to possibilities, truth isn't. You can see what he's saying, can't you? Uh, if you write a novel, you're constrained to narrate things that are within the realms of possibility. Otherwise, you might lose your audience and they'll fail to believe you. But truth has no such constraints. It, it just is. Now, lots of people come to the Gospels and the story of Jesus with the experience of them as strange. Uh, it's no wonder at one level. They're texts that come from 2,000 years ago at a time and a place and a culture in first century Roman Palestine that's very different from our own. And so it's no wonder there's going to be some strange things about them. You'll find that with any ancient text. But people often find the Gospels strange because of the things that Jesus says and does in them. He heals the sick. He feeds 5,000 people from a couple of bread loaves and fish. Uh, he calms a storm. He walks on water. He casts out demons and he rises from the dead. And the question I want to ask today, I want you to ask as you go away from today, is could it be possible that these things are true, that they really happened? Could this be, what we read in the Gospels, a truth that is stranger than fiction? And as a way into that, I want to show you that the New Testament claims about Jesus can be taken seriously from a historical perspective. The fundamental picture that the early Christian texts give us of Jesus is historically reliable. And that leaves us with this question. What do we do with those parts of the story that we find strange? What do we do with the person in the story with Jesus himself? So we're going to look first at some of the non-Christian sources for Jesus. There's a handout. I hope you've got that. It'll show you where we're headed. Uh, and then at some of the early Christian sources for Jesus outside the Gospels. And then finally at the Gospels themselves, which are the best historical sources for Jesus. And so when we come to look at the non-Christian sources for Jesus, what we find is that there is no reason to doubt that Jesus really existed. Even if we didn't have any of the Christian texts, even if the whole New Testament was missing and the other early Christian texts after the New Testament, we would readily recognise Jesus as a real historical figure who lived in time and place. We'd know a fair bit about him. The Greco-Roman sources can be listed like this. We haven't got time to really talk about them any more than just mention their names, but uh, Jesus is fairly clearly mentioned, often explicitly by name, but if not, uh, in ways that make it clear that he's the one being talked about in Thalos and Marabas or Appion and Pliny the Younger and Tacitus and Suetonius and Lucian and Celsus. Uh, there's seven non-Christian Greco-Roman sources from which we can glean some information about Jesus. And then in the Jewish world, we've got Josephus who mentions Jesus twice. We'll look at one of those in just a minute. Uh, and then two texts from the Jewish Talmud, both of which mention Jesus as a sorcerer who led Israel astray. And so when we put all of that together, it's quite a lot that we can say about Jesus. If, if those sources were all that we had, uh, we'd end up with this, his name, the name of his mother, the ambiguous nature of his birth, about which there was some controversy, the name of one of his brothers, James, the location and the time frame of his life and work in Palestine under Roman rule during the reign of the Emperor Tiberius and the uh, procurator Pilate, his fame as a teacher, his fame as a miracle worker or perhaps a sorcerer, depending on the perspective of the source we're reading, the title given to him of Messiah or Christ, his status as a wise king, 
the time of his death around Passover, the manner of his death on a Roman cross by crucifixion, the involvement of Jewish and Roman leadership in his execution, the phenomenon of an eclipse at the time of his death, the report of his appearances to his followers after his death and a movement that worshipped him uh, almost immediately following his death. And I hope you can agree that's quite a lot of detail that we can piece together about Jesus merely from these non-Christian sources about him. None of that is controversial. None of that requires faith. All of this is just a simple reading of the Greco-Roman and Jewish sources that mention Jesus. I want to take a closer look with you at just two of the sources, Flavius Josephus and Tacitus. Josephus, we know him as a Jewish historian. He was quite an influential figure in first century Jewish history. Uh, He joined the Jewish revolt against Rome and led the forces in Galilee uh, when the Romans came to invade uh, what we know as Roman Palestine in 66 AD. Uh, He later switched sides to the Romans and ended up serving uh, the Roman emperors on a Roman pension uh, and lived out his days uh, in a nice villa in in, uh, Rome writing his histories. And at two points in Josephus' histories, he mentions Jesus. This is the most famous one, which gives us the most detail. Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man. This is his Jewish Antiquities, Book 18. If it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of surprising deeds, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him on the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him, and the tribe of the Christians so named after him are not extinct to this day. Now, I'm sure you've noticed there's a number of interesting things in that quote, and most scholars don't think that Josephus wrote the whole of this passage that some pro-Christian tampering has gone on. And I put those sections in the square brackets and italics. Nevertheless, even if you take them out, it's widely accepted that the core of this text is original to Josephus. And especially if you take those pro-Christian statements out, what remains almost certainly is not written by a Christian and fits well with something that Josephus himself could have written. For example, the expression wise man there in the first line presents a rather low view of Jesus. And that alone probably explains why a later Christian felt the need to add, if indeed one ought to call him a man. The the reference to his surprising deeds uh, translates a Greek phrase that could be translated unusual or baffling feats, which again is a strange way for a Christian believer to describe Jesus' miraculous works. Those who condemned Jesus are rather complementarily described as men of high standing. Uh, Again, not something you'd expect from a Christian author. Uh, A statement that Jesus won over many of the Greeks flatly contradicts what we find in the Gospels and in the letters of Paul, that Jesus' mission was focused on Israel and the Jews, uh, and therefore is unlikely to have been written by a Christian. And especially it's unlikely that a believer would have said that the Christian tribe has still to this day not disappeared. It kind of gives you the impression it's going to disappear one day soon, uh, which is something unlikely for a Christian to write. And, And so the strong consensus amongst those who have studied Josephus is that the core of this, uh, with the bits in square brackets taken out, is original to Josephus. And so here we have a substantial testimony from non-Christian Jew, which gives us the basic outline of Jesus' life, including especially his crucifixion under uh, Pontius Pilate. The other source comports well with that. This is Tacitus, uh, the Roman historian, is a Roman orator and statesman 
uh, from the end of the first century, early second century AD. He was Roman consul, in fact, the highest office under the emperor in AD 97, later became proconsul of Asia, uh, what we know as Turkey. And his book here, Annals of Imperial Rome, you can pick it up at Dimmicks uh, or online somewhere for cheap. He describes a way in which the Roman Emperor Nero made a scapegoat of the Christians after the great fire of Rome. A rumour had spread that Nero himself had started the fire. Uh, the rumour gathered momentum because Nero built his own golden palace on the part of Rome that had been burnt out by the fire. And so it started to look suspicious. And so he turns to a scapegoat and he picks on the Christians. And so in narrating this event, Tacitus gives us some information about the origins of these Christians. He says, to scotch the rumour, Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty, a class of men loathed for their vices, whom the crowd styled Christians. Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator, Pontius Pilate. And the pernicious superstition was checked for the moment, only to break out once more, not merely in Judea, the home of the disease, but in the capital itself, where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and find a vogue. You can see here Tacitus is an old man, a bit narky, a bit grumpy old man syndrome coming through in the writing here, uh, where he's no fan at all of the early Christian movement. He calls it something horrible and shameful and all of those kinds of things congregate in the capital uh, in Rome itself. He, he talks about Christians being loathed for their vices. He talks about Christianity as a pernicious superstition. He's no fan of this movement. And yet, incidentally, uh, in describing the actions of Nero, uh, he gives us a good amount of information about Jesus, the originator of this tribe of the Christians, uh, which comports exactly with what we've got in Josephus, that Jesus was executed uh, during the time of Pontius Pilate by the sentence of, of Pilate. And this is significant. When we put these two texts together, we've got Josephus, a Jewish historian, and Tacitus, a Roman historian, both of them independent of each other. There's no sign that either of them relied on the other. They're giving us complementary information, but from different perspectives. Each of them also independent from the early Christian sources and the Gospels, and yet confirming the major details that we have about the life and especially the death of Jesus uh, under Pilate uh, in Jerusalem. And so Christopher Tuckett's statement here in the Cambridge Companion to Jesus, uh, Tuckett himself as Professor of New Testament at the University of Oxford, is really just reporting the consensus of mainstream, uh, including non-Christian scholarship about Jesus, when he says the fact that Jesus existed, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, seems to be part of the bedrock of historical tradition. If nothing else, the non-Christian evidence can provide us with certainty on that score. That's a very strong statement. You've got to remember that Tuckett is a Brit, famously understated, that he's an Oxford professor, very careful in his words. Uh, and yet in his last sentence there, he'll say nothing else, the non-Christian evidence can provide us with certainty on that score. That's about as strong as a statement as you'll get from a British professor from Oxford about the reliability of this uh, kind of tradition. Uh, and that's a consensus amongst the people who study these sources. But we can add to that, not just the non-Christian sources, we've also got a whole bunch of incidental references to Jesus in early Christian sources outside the Gospels. And again, we've only got time to mention some of their names, and uh, if you know the New Testament, you'll know these well. The 13 letters of Paul, the letter of James, two letters of Peter, the book of Acts, three letters from John, and then outside the New Testament, Clement's letter, uh, the Didache, seven letters from Ignatius, and the letter of Polycarp, all of them within... Uh, a hundred years of Jesus' crucifixion in Jerusalem, and all of them give us incidental information about Jesus, which allows us to build up the historical picture about him. 
Uh, this is a whole series of independent sources. We often think of them as uh, the body of material collected in the New Testament, at least one through five there on the list. Uh, but these were originally written as independent, separate sources, and yet they provide us with complementary information, uh, information that confirms each other uh, about Jesus as a figure in history. Uh, so some of the things we can fill in, for example, is if we take Paul's letter to the Corinthians. He'll give us an account of Jesus' uh, naming of the bread and the wine as symbols for his own body and blood at his Last Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, he'll give us the names of some of the witnesses of the resurrection, information that we didn't get from the non-Christian sources, but fits hand and glove within it. And in fact, it's in one of those letters, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, uh, that we get this, which is probably the earliest Christian creed, where Paul says to the Corinthians, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Kephas and then to the twelve. That's Peter, Kephas. This, of course, takes us right to the very heart of the Christian faith. Paul himself says these are matters of first importance. And so it's important to notice the language he uses for what he's here passing on to the Corinthians. I what I delivered to you, I also received. This is the language of formal transmission of tradition in the ancient world. And Paul is saying that he passed on to the Corinthians this tradition about Christ's death for sins uh, and his burial and his resurrection on the third day and his appearance to witnesses beginning with Kephas uh, and the Twelve. Paul wrote this letter around 55 AD, within 20 years of Jesus' crucifixion in Jerusalem. But by the time he's writing this letter, he's already passed this on to the Corinthians. When was that? Probably during his ministry in Corinth in the early 50s AD. But in order to pass it on to the Corinthians, when did he receive it? Because he says, I delivered to you what I in turn received. Almost certainly Paul received this tradition in the very early days after his conversion uh, on the road to Damascus. And so uh, James Dunn, again a leading scholar uh, of New Testament, and especially Jesus and the Gospels, comments on this little passage in 1 Corinthians 15. This tradition, we can be entirely confident, was formulated as tradition within months of Jesus' death. So these reports of Jesus' death, his burial, and even of his resurrection were being circulated amongst the Christians from the very beginning. And so the early Christian sources outside the Gospels fill in the picture and give us more information about Jesus as a figure in history. But above and beyond that, above and beyond the non-Christian sources, above and beyond the early Christian sources outside of the Gospels, by far the best sources for Jesus uh, is the, are the four Gospels themselves from the first century. And so Jens Schroeder from Humboldt University in Berlin says, it should be uncontested that the Gospels included in the canon, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, represent the earliest narrative reworkings of the activity and fate of Jesus and simultaneously possess a historically preserving character. They are therefore, and not because of their later canonization, the decisive sources for a historical presentation of the activity and fate of Jesus. Again, he's merely emphasizing and summarizing a consensus here. It should be uncontested, Schroeder can say. Christians, of course, recognize the Gospels as God's word, as divinely inspired scripture, as part of the canon of the Bible. But even without that recognition, even from the point of view of an unbelieving historian, the Gospels are our best sources for Jesus because they're the earliest narrative representations of him, because 
They're most fulsome in their pictures of him. And as Schroeder says, because they have a historically preserving character. Uh, he's talking about the general historical reliability of the Gospels, uh, which I want to emphasise for you as appearing from four observations about them. Uh, they're there on the outline, so let's uh, have a look at these reasons to trust what the Gospels tell us about Jesus. The first one is that the Gospels are early. Uh, I've given you there on the handout the widely accepted dates for the Gospels amongst New Testament scholars. Mark, perhaps as early as 55 or perhaps as late as 70. Matthew and Luke, somewhere between 65 and 85. And John, somewhere between 60 and 95. These are widely accepted dates across a wide range of scholars. Uh, the Gospels could, in fact, be earlier than this, and a good case can be made that all four of them are written before AD 70. Uh, the point for us is that all of them are written within the lifetimes of those who knew and lived and witnessed Jesus' life. That means the authors of the Gospels could check their sources and also they would be held to account by people who knew Jesus and witnessed the events of his life uh, for what they wrote. Uh, and so it's important to see that the Gospels are not only early, but also grounded in eyewitness testimony to Jesus. Uh, each of the Gospels makes this claim in its own way. Have a look at Luke here, a very famous passage at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke on the screen, where Luke writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us. There's that language again of formal tradition. By those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Luke himself was not an eyewitness. Uh, he's upfront about that. But he has in his possession written accounts, many, he says, uh, from eyewitnesses, of those who are eyewitnesses and servants of the word from the first. And he's done his own historical research, investigating with the eyewitnesses, uh, gathering oral histories, and he's written that up in order to give an account for Theophilus, probably his patron, paying for him to do the research and write the work uh, to, so that Theophilus can know the certainty of the things about Jesus that he has been taught. John makes a claim to eyewitness testimony uh, in a different but similar way. Uh, so this is the end of the Gospel of John. After Jesus' resurrection, as he appears to the disciples on the beach in Galilee, uh, and there's a story where Jesus is speaking with Peter as they walk along the beach. And Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. Uh, this is a figure who's named a number of times in the Gospels, but never given a, a proper name. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved, or the beloved disciple. And as you read through the Gospel of John, you find him there in the upper room with Jesus at the Last Supper. You find him there at the foot of the cross as Jesus is being crucified and Jesus entrusts the care of his own mother to this disciple whom he loves. You find him there at the empty tomb uh, as a witness to the resurrection. Uh, and this disciple whom Jesus loved is walking along the beach behind Peter and Peter turns and he sees him. Uh, John tells us this is the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? A reference back to John 13 in this gospel. And then we read immediately following, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. You see the claim there? This gospel has been written by one of Jesus's inner circle, by one who was there at the Last Supper and there at the cross and there at the empty tomb, one who was an eyewitness of the events that, that are being narrated uh, in the gospel. So again, in his own way, John is making a claim to, to present eyewitness testimony to Jesus. Mark does the same thing, though again in a slightly different way. 
Uh, this one requires a little bit more work, but it falls out fairly neatly when we notice the beginning and the ending of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, the first named figure in the Gospel who was still alive at the time of the writing of the Gospel is Simon, otherwise known as Peter. Uh, so Mark starts like this, 16 verses in, passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon. Notice how Simon's name is being mentioned twice there. Andrew is being introduced as the brother of Simon, and so Simon's name is being highlighted. Simon casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. During the course of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus gives to Simon a nickname, Peter, Rocky, uh, and it's by that name that he then gets uh, referred to in the rest of the Gospel. And so at the very end, the very last named figure in the Gospel is also this same Simon Peter, Mark 16, 7. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now that may seem insignificant to us that Peter is named first in the Gospel and then last in the Gospel. But as far as we can tell, this is an ancient device in history writing, historiography, uh, for authors to identify their major sources by naming them first and last in the narrative. It's, it's like an ancient form of footnoting. What's your source for this essay? Well, it's Peter, and I'm going to name him first and last to show that the whole of the testimony included in my written work is authorised by Peter, one of Jesus' inner circle. Now, if you want to follow up on this point, this is the book to read from Richard Balcom, uh, who's Professor of New Testament at Ridley Hall in Cambridge, uh, and the book Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, where he puts it like this. The two references form an inclusio, uh, two references to Peter, that is, around the whole story, suggesting that Peter is the witness whose testimony includes the whole. And so the four Gospels, in their own way, claim eyewitness testimony. In addition to that, we've got a plethora of early Christian references which also present the Gospels as bearing eyewitness testimony from people who knew Jesus, uh, who lived and walked and talked with him, who saw the events of his life uh, and who then wrote them down. Uh, perhaps the most significant here is a guy called Irenaeus of Lyon. He was an early Christian bishop in southern France. Uh, if you're going to be a bishop somewhere, then southern France is not a bad place to do it. Uh, and here he is. Uh, he's significant because Irenaeus has a direct personal connection back to the Apostle John. Uh, Irenaeus uh, testifies that he knew Polycarp, uh, another early Christian leader, a generation earlier. Uh, and Polycarp knew the Apostle John. And so you've got John and then Polycarp and then Irenaeus. We've got a direct personal link back to one of Jesus' closest disciples. And here's what Irenaeus has to say about the origins of the four Gospels. He says, For after our Lord rose from the dead, the apostles were invested with power from on high when the Holy Spirit came down upon them. They departed to the ends of the earth, preaching the glad tidings of the good things sent from, us, from God to us and proclaiming the peace of heaven to men. And Matthew issued a written gospel among the Hebrews. Notice he says Matthew also issued. He's been proclaiming the gospel orally, announcing it by word, uh, but now he's also written it up in a book. Uh, he wrote it among the Hebrews in their own dialect while Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome. After their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, there's the connection between Mark and Peter that we've already seen in the gospel itself, did hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. Luke, also the companion of Paul, recorded in a book the gospel preached by him, and afterward John, the disciple of the Lord, who had also leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence uh, in, at Ephesus in Asia. So it's not just that the gospels make this claim for themselves, it's also recognised widely in the early churches, and we could multiply references like this one from Irenaeus. But when we turn to the Gospels themselves, we see that 
the Gospels bear all the hallmarks of what we might expect in reliable historical testimony. Uh, let's have a look at just three examples uh, of the way in which the Gospels appear as reliable testimony. They exhibit the kinds of things you expect uh, in a source that is reliably telling you the truth uh, about the past. Uh, first, I'm going to talk to you about what we might call multiple independent attestation. Uh, this is the recognition that the Gospels tell us the same story, substantially the same uh, heart of the story, and yet with differing perspectives. And you see this when you open up the newspaper. This is a couple of years ago now, uh, after the Australian cricket team were trounced in one of the Ashes uh, matches at Trent Bridge. And, of course, uh, here's the Daily Telegraph. Disaster. Uh, same uh, same event reported in the British press, best day ever. <laughs> right? Clearly different perspectives on the same event, and yet when you dig down into the details, the scorecards are the same, the accounts of the dismissals are the same, uh, the, the leading run scorers are the same. They're clearly speaking about the same event, and yet they're speaking about the same event from very different perspectives. And this leads us to recognise that even though these... Uh, newspapers have a perspective on the events that they're narrating, they're reliably giving us the guts of the story. And we see the same kind of thing over and over again uh, in the Gospels. Let me give you just a couple of examples, starting with, say, Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Uh, if you look on the left-hand side of the table, the Gospel of Matthew reports that it was after Jesus was born in Bethlehem that these wise men, these magi, uh, came to visit Jesus looking for him and turn up to Herod, uh, the king of the Jews. Uh, later on, when Herod investigates where is the Christ, the, the promised king to be born, some of the scribes come to him down in verse 4 and they report a prophecy out of the Old Testament, out of the book of Micah. So it is written in the prophet Micah that he'll be born in Bethlehem. When we come across to the Gospel of Luke, we get the same detail that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And yet the way in which it's presented is very different. There's no reference to the wise men whatsoever. They don't feature in Luke's story at all. There's no mention to the prophecy of Micah. It doesn't feature in Luke's story at all. And yet instead, we have reference to this decree that went out from Caesar Augustus, uh, that a census should be taken of the, the whole known world. And so this is why Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem, uh, where Jesus is eventually born, down in verse 4 and verse 7. Uh, the census... And the shepherds, which appear later on in Luke, don't appear in Matthew's Gospel. The Magi and the quote from Micah don't appear in Luke's Gospel. So we've got very different accounts, and yet agreeing on the substance that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And we call this multiple independent attestation. It's independent because Luke is not relying on Matthew, and Matthew is not relying on Luke. It's multiple because there's more than one source, and yet they're both independently telling us the same thing, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This is exactly what you expect from a reliable testimony. Another example of the same kind of thing, when we get to the end of the Gospels and the climax of them as Jesus is hanging on the cross, and we find the titulus, the, the title explaining why Jesus is being crucified, it's there in all four Gospels, in Matthew and Mark and in Luke and in John. All of them have the same substance, uh, that the title read that he was king of the Jews, and yet notice none of them has exactly the same words. Uh, each of them is independent of the other. It's not as if Matthew has copied Mark's wording or Luke has copied Matthew's wording or John has copied Mark's wording. Uh, each has their own wording and yet all of them have the same substance. Again, this is a good example of what we call multiple independent 
attestation. And it's a sign of historical reliability in sources as we investigate them. Another sign of that kind of reliability is what we might call the criterion of embarrassment. Uh, this is where you have sources retelling things that might be potentially embarrassing and yet they re retell them because, well, it's part of the story and it's unavoidable. And one of the things you notice about all four Gospels when it comes to their accounts of the empty tomb and the resurrection appearances is that in all four Gospels, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, it's women uh, who first find the tomb empty and women to whom Jesus first appears alive. Uh, that's significant in the ancient world because the testimony of women was widely disregarded both in Greco-Roman society and in Jewish society. I want to be clear, this is not my perspective, nor is it the perspective of the Christian faith. Uh, but it's certainly the perspective of some of these Greek and Roman sources into which these Gospels were written. So have a look, for example, at Josephus, who we've met already in his Antiquities of the Jews. He says, from women, let no evidence be accepted because of the levity and temerity of their sex. Uh, or the Mishnah, a Jewish work from the second century AD, uh, says the law governing an oath of testimony applies to men and not to women, to those who are suitable to bear witness and not to those who are unsuitable to bear witness. Women are unsuitable to bear witness, according to the Mishnah, a Jewish work contemporaneous with the Gospels. Uh, or Oregon, uh, an early Christian writer who's quoting a pagan writer named Celsus. Uh, Oregon is refuting him, but he quotes Celsus along the way. Uh, and this is what Celsus says, at least according to Oregon. After death, he rose again and showed the marks of his punishment and how his hands had been pierced. But who saw this? a hysterical female. You can see the, the derision with which Celsus holds this story about Jesus appearing alive to the women. And yet, not just one, not just two, but all four of the Gospels narrate the story that it was women who were first to see the empty tomb and women to whom Jesus first appeared alive when it's so potentially embarrassing in their audiences. Why? Well, this is a good argument that they're giving us reliable testimony because this is the way it actually happened. Okay, and the third one uh, is what we might call undesigned coincidences. We've seen multiple independent attestation, embarrassment, and now undesigned coincidences uh, in the Gospel. These are uh, incidental details in the Gospels that show no sign of having been designed or planned uh, and yet comport well with each other. They fit hand in glove. And so, for example, if you're reading through the Gospel of Mark, you'll find at the trial of Jesus in Mark 14, 57, uh, and 59, this report that some stood up and bore false witness against him saying, we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that's made with hands and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. If you're reading the Gospel of Mark, this comes as a bit of a surprise because Mark has nowhere reported that Jesus said anything like this. And yet these witnesses are saying that he did. When we come across to the Gospel of John, we find a story in John chapter 2, after Jesus has overturned the tables in the temple, where the Jews say to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Here's the saying which Mark is assuming, and yet Mark has never reported it. And so we've got this undesigned coincidence that Mark and John agree in something that Jesus said, uh, and yet there's no sense in which John is coordinating with Mark or Mark is coordinating with John. They're independent of each other. It's an undesigned coincidence which gives the ring of truth to both stories. Now, if there was only one such undesigned coincidence, you might not be very impressed. But 
As you read through the Gospels and you read them carefully, you find that there are literally tens of these undesigned coincidences. Let me give you just one other. In the Gospel of John, uh, when Jesus is about to feed the 5,000, he lifts up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, he says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? It's interesting that he speaks to Philip like this because Philip is a relatively minor character in the story. Uh, He's one of the 12 disciples, one of the 12 apostles, and yet he doesn't get mentioned very much. Uh, He's a a relatively minor character in the story. And so you're left wondering, why does Jesus ask Philip where to buy bread? Uh, Why not Peter, a much more prominent disciple, or John or James, also much more prominent disciples? Why Philip Uh, asking about this very particular practical question, where do we buy bread? Well, we can fill in the picture when we realise that the same story about Jesus feeding the 5,000, as it's reported in Luke, is located near the town of Bethsaida. The picture there shows you what Bethsaida looks like and you see the Sea of Galilee away in the distance. Jesus took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And as the day began to wear away and the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. Now, Luke doesn't tell us that Jesus turned particularly to Philip to ask the question. But he sends the disciples, he addresses the disciples as a whole and tells them to go away and to find food. But Luke does tell us that this happened in Bethsaida. When we come back to the Gospel of John, we find this incidental detail about Philip, that Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And so it gives us a rationale for why Jesus might have said to Philip in John chapter 6, where are we to buy bread? Because he's the local boy. He knows where to buy these things. And yet, John has not located the miracle near Bethsaida. We only know that from Luke. And Luke has not located Philip being from Bethsaida. We only know that from John. And so we have these undesigned coincidences between the gospel, which as we get not just one or two, but literally tens of these across the gospels, the whole story gathers this ring of truth. It's a cumulative case that they fit hand in glove with each other without having been designed to do so. Why? because they're narrating events that really happened. Okay, one last point to make is that, similar to that except on a broader scale, uh, the Gospels provide a really good contextual fit with what we know about first century Roman Palestine. Uh, And again, there are hundreds of examples that we could give here, but let me give you just a couple. Uh, On the sheet I've mentioned the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, who are reported to us in Josephus and in Philo and in other ancient Uh, Jewish and Greco-Roman works, and we know a fair bit about their positions, uh, their theological commitments, their stance in life. Uh, And we know, for example, that the Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, whereas the Pharisees accepted the whole thing, uh, the whole of the Jewish scriptures. Uh, The Sadducees denied the possibility of resurrection, uh, whereas uh, the Pharisees believed in the possibility of resurrection, that God would raise the dead. And when we open up the Gospels, we find that the way the Pharisees and the Sadducees are presented in the Gospels, again, fits hand in glove with this information we have about the Pharisees and the Sadducees from Josephus and Philo and the other sources. Uh, Or to pick another example uh, from archaeology, and again, there are a number we could have drawn on here. Uh, We have this little incidental reference in John 5, chapter 2, that there is in Jerusalem by the sheep goat a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Uh, This is like the uh, the, the quad, main quad, uh, roofed colonnade is just the walking areas around the outside of the quad. Uh, and here's a pool near the sheep gate in Jerusalem that's got five roofed colonnades. Incidental passing detail uh, until 
we turn this up, the pool of Bethesda discovered adjacent to the temple uh, in Jerusalem around AD 61, uh, and the archeologists uh, can lay out, and if you Google this, you'll find the details, the five roofed colonnades that uh, map to this pool of Bethesda in exactly the location that John puts it. Now this is just another example of the contextual fit of the gospels with what we know about first century Roman Palestine from other written and archeological sources. So where does all that leave us? There's no real historical question uh, about whether Jesus existed. Uh, the historical evidence is clear on that score. Uh, John Dixon, who I think is giving this talk tomorrow and is my colleague in the unit that we teach together on uh, historical Jesus and written gospels over in the Department of Hebrew, Bible and Jewish Studies. He's got an ongoing challenge. Uh, he'll probably talk about it tomorrow, I guess, that if anyone can find a professor in a relevant discipline, classics, ancient history, New Testament, biblical studies, who denies the existence of Jesus, then he'll eat his Bible, he says, because he's been searching for years now, uh, and, and there just is no one around. Uh, any relevant professor who has qualifications in ancient history, classics, biblical studies, uh, no, no one with those qualifications will deny the existence of Jesus because the evidence is just so overwhelming. So there's no real historical question about whether Jesus existed or not. There's also no real historical question about a great deal of Jesus' life. That he was born in Bethlehem during the reign of Augustus, that he lived and worked in Galilee, that he became famous as a miracle worker, or was it as a sorcerer, according to the Jewish sources, that he proclaimed the kingdom of God, that he taught his followers to love their enemies, that he challenged the Jewish religious establishment of his day, that he was handed over by them to Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified on a Roman cross just outside Jerusalem, that within three days of his crucifixion, his followers were claiming that he was alive again and began to worship him. Uh, there's no real historical controversy about any of that. Uh, all of that falls out quite convincingly from the sources that we've got, non-Christian, Christian sources outside the Gospels and the Gospels themselves. So here's the real question. If the Gospels are substantially reliable sources for so much of what they report, could it be possible that they're also reliable for the parts that we find strange? That Jesus actually healed the sick, that he actually raised the dead, that he cast out demons, that he calmed the storm, that he himself rose bodily from the dead. And if so, what would that mean for our understanding of the world, our understanding of God, our understanding of ourselves, our understanding of Jesus? The real question, you see, is not merely historical, it's theological. It's what do these stories make us think about God, about the really big questions of life? The real question is not merely academic, it's personal. And that's the question I want to leave you with today. What does this stranger-than-fiction truth mean? How do we make sense of Jesus as he appears to us on the pages of the Gospels? And the best way to make a start on that is to read the Gospels for yourself. And so I want to leave you with this challenge. If you haven't yet read the Gospel of Mark or Matthew or Luke or John, pick up one of them. It doesn't matter which one, any one of them. Pick up one of the Gospels and make that a project this semester. Read through it and ask yourself this question, how can I make sense of these historical reports about Jesus? There's no real question about the existence of Jesus or about the basic outline of his life. The real question is about the stranger parts of the story and about what they might mean for God and ourselves 
and Jesus. I'll leave it there.